Late last year, a leak from a U.S. Navy facility poisoned the water supply of approximately 93,000 Oa'u residents with jet fuel tainted water. Today and for the indefinite future, Oahu faces a catastrophic threat to its sole source aquifer, likely the biggest water crisis it has ever seen and one of the largest in the United States. The Red Hill Underground Bulk Fuel Storage Facility was built in secret during World War II, 100 feet above Oahu's principal drinking water source. For the past eight decades, the facility has been leaking fuel into the porous lava rock below it. Due to the complex hydrogeology and location of Oahu's groundwater aquifer, the fuel that has infiltrated the porous lava rock can leak at any given time, speed, and direction. This ongoing crisis is not a recent phenomenon. The Red Hill facility has been leaking since at least 75 years ago, when the first known leak occurred in 1947. The following year, an earthquake caused a massive leak, and the largest known leak was 27,000 gallons in January 2014. Since 1943, at least 180,000 gallons of fuel, likely more, have leaked from the Red Hill facility into the surrounding environment. In this episode, I'm joined by Mikey and Keone from the Oahu Water Protectors to discuss what's happening with Red Hill and some of the recent victories they've had thanks to direct action. Please take a listen and support the work they're doing. While a testament to the destruction of our economic system, there are silver linings to be found as we look towards a future of increasing ecological destabilization. Mikey Keone, thank you so much for joining us. Could you please introduce yourselves for my audience? Aloha mai kako. My name is Keone DeFranco. I'm a Kanaka Maoli, a Native Hawaiian, and an Oahu water protector. And yeah, we're here because there's jet fuel in our water. Aloha, my name is Mikey. I'm a member of Oahu Water Protectors and the Shutdown Red Hill Mutual Aid Collective. And I'm an Asian settler, born and raised on Oahu. And yeah, we're, we're fighting for our aquifer, uh, the sole source aquifer that provides water to nearly 400,000 people to Honolulu. Awesome. Thanks so much. So we, we actually kind of started this interview like 25 minutes ago and we started <laughs> chit-chatting and then realized we should probably start recording. So I hope we don't miss anything because I, I don't... I know we talked about a bunch already, but for folks that are not familiar with what's going on, or maybe they've seen like, you know, a, a singular post on Instagram saying, hey, something's going on with the water in Hawaii. Either of you, I think Mikey had wanted to talk a little bit about this, like what's going on exactly right now in Hawaii? Sure thing. Yeah. So the Red Hill Bulk Fuel Storage Facility, otherwise known in shorthand as Red Hill, it sits in Kapukaki, which is the Hawaiian place name for it just 100 feet above our aquifer, which provides water to nearly half the people on Oahu. And the Navy built it during World War II, and it has been leaking almost all the time ever since, nearly 80 years ago. And that fuel is considered wartime reserve, and it gets pumped down from Kapukaki to Pu'uloa, known more popularly as Pearl Harbor, to fuel many of the weapons of war that U.S. Empire uses to exert its power and influence over the rest of the world. 
to maintain that capitalist hegemony that we all know and hate. <laughs> and um, just la late last year, in November of 2021, thousands of people fell ill because there was a catastrophic leak in the Red Hill fuel facility where thousands of gallons of jet fuel leaked into the Navy's Red Hill well, which wildly was put into the same facility as the Red Hill fuel storage. And over Thanksgiving weekend, adults, children, babies, pets got violently ill and ended up reporting all of the signs that are consistent with exposure to petroleum hydrocarbons, everything ranging from debilitating fatigue, brain fog, vomiting, diarrhea, just some of the most painful rashes, uh, rashes that are, are so intense, particularly for smaller, uh, you know, young adults and children that many of the survivors described it to their own parents as, as feeling like their whole body is either covered in mosquito bites or that their whole throat just feels like it's on fire. And of course, none of these parents knew what was going on until the Navy was forced to admit it. The Navy lied to them. They shut off that Red Hill well out of an abundance of caution, but they didn't apply that same abundance of caution to the families over that weekend. Um, and they continued to tell them for quite some time that the water was safe, despite the spill having occurred. And what is a caring parent going to do when their child is sick, but give them more water, right? Give them whatever medicine they're told yeah. to give them and hydrate them. And so this is obviously a war crime, right? I mean, this, this happened to many military families in military housing, but it happened to civilians as well. And it also happened to the Aina and to the Vite that, that, that gives us life here. Um, and, and Keone can speak more to that, how land and water are literal relations and, and uh, how Kanaka Maoli, Native Hawaiians, are, are directly descended from the land itself. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's one of our main purposes on Earth to protect that which feeds us and gives us life. Um, but yeah, that, that is what we as Oahu Water Protectors have been organizing around for nearly a year at this point to shut down those Red Hill fuel tanks that many uh, of our elected misrepresentatives in Congress who are in the pocket of defense contractors have been doing their damnedest to try to keep open for decades longer than it's uh, even its own, uh, you know, uh, lifespan. Jesus. Yeah, that's that's a lot. So I have a, what might be kind of a, a stupid question. Isn't poisoned water bad for everyone, including the Navy? <laughs> you would think so, right? Yeah, like, yeah, like so, even lizard uh, people and pigs have to drink water. Yeah, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. Yeah, you just, there's, there's some kind of, I think capitalism is a hell of a drug, right? And, and, and the influence that, that, that whole ideology has, not just on the way you think, but the way that you talk and live your life, when you are that invested into this omnicidal project that is capitalism, right? You, you start to literally create a false equivalence between capital and water, fuel and water, and basically all relations in like what, what you know, uh, I mean, Cesare called like the thingification, right? That comes with colonialism, where everything's just a, just a thing. And all the, all the actual content, anything that you could hold sacred is, is removed from it. And, and, and it's just something to be consumed, to be exploited, consumed, and then thrown away. And as I'm, as I'm sure all y'all on 
poor proles know, like water under a capitalist system is basically treated like a transmission line for waste, right? Both, you know, human waste, organic waste and chemical waste. And it all just speaks to this kind of what I call like the dark ecology of capital, where it has its own kind of like uh, self-contained logic. It only makes sense once you understand the purpose is not to create a sustainable system for life, (laughs) right? But to create a temporarily self-sustaining death spiral for for capital accumulation. But like it, it, it runs in direct contradiction to indigenous lifeways and to the land and water itself, where water has to be diverted by the billions of gallons uh, daily just to sustain that unsustainable way of life. And, and uh, it all goes towards serving things like, you know, U.S. imperialism and, and, and this, you know, this patriarchal racist capitalist project that not only despoliates and diverts and destroys ultimately water, but also displaces and dehumanizes and ultimately destroys the indigenous people who protect that water and, and who, who had created and still fight to, to preserve the indigenous lifeways that live with the water rather than completely against the grain of it. I really like that term, dark ecology. Like you were talking and I was thinking about like, you, you know, this idea of like how much wastewater we have, because much like with, you know, it ties really well into like the climate change as like climate change is a hoax. Like the argument of like we can continuously extract oil and continuously dump emissions into the air because it can subjectively feel like there's an infinite amount of air, much like with our chemicals, that there's an infinite amount of ocean that we can continuously dilute. And that feeds into this infiniteness that is capital with growth. Like all of these things, I think, are really tied together in this this model of perpetual growth, perpetual consumption. And um, I think that term dark ecology really ties that together really well. So first off, thank you for that. Thanks. Yeah, no, and and what you just said made me think of just like another one of those things about how ideology under capitalism so influences the way we craft a language, right? The, like like things like we, we refer to, to capital and capital relations in so many ways that connect to water in order to put it on par with life, right? Like how liquid are your assets, right? Is, is, is the capital flowing, right? What is your income yeah. stream? And, and, uh, and the, the word you just mentioned, like wastewater. In anything outside of a capitalist system, that would be nothing other than a verb. But now it's just, it's just something that we have accepted into our lives as a thing that can and should exist. When There should be no such thing yeah. as wastewater. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, and that plays into one of the things I know you, you uh, talk about quite a bit, and it's that the water itself is more than just water. Locally and globally, I'll, I'll kick it over to Keone. Could you speak a little bit about the importance of water in particular and why uh, this is just this is more than just about water? Sure. Yeah, actually, um, a, a new report was recently published that proves the population of the Kanaka Mali prior to Western contact was 1.2 million. Prior to this, estimates had ranged from as low as two to 300,000 to you know just below a million. So now that we've proven that the population was much larger, the, the current population of the quote-unquote state of Hawaii is 1.4 million. Um, and so to take that into context, you, you kind of look at Honolulu, you see those skyscrapers, understand there were not people living in that capacity, and, and then understand that we were living in a self-sustaining, regenerative agricultural society designed around the watersheds, ensuring 
that the water flowed from mountain to ocean at all times, ahupua'a. And that was how life flowed, and that was how we sustained ourselves for, for generations. You know, the Kanaka Maoli land in Hawaii, um, but they were seafaring people that, that left South Asia and settle and, and discover all of Polynesia. And so they were people that understood when they landed in a new place, identifying where the, your water source is, you know, giving them place names to ensure that they are protected, kapu kaki kapu meaning sacred. You know, we always knew that that hill and that mountain was a place to be careful. You know, the, the legends of the mo'o, the, the water snake or that dragon that lives there, those legends are, are, are created and told so that we're mindful of how we act in the presence of life giving by. That's why those stories are composed, because we understood as, as island people that we have finite amount of resources and, and we must ensure that we have enough vai to, to, to live. You know, olaika vai, water is life. And vai, vai, vai you know, is a, a term used to um, describe wealth, you know, it's just water, water twice. And vai in itself, you know, when you think of a movement like Mauna Kea, as important as that movement is for its spirituality, you know, the the other way of looking at it is understanding these stories are written, Mauna Kea, Mauna Awa Kea, Wakebe, and that Sky Father, you know, placing the importance of, of that entity there is also because that's a place where it snows, that that, that is a, a serious water table for that island of Hawaii. And, and a movement there to push from any kind of development, telescope or not, in protection of fresh water. Um, that is how all these movements within Hawaii are, are linked. They, they tend to be around the protection of our resources because we understand what it's taken to preserve them. And since the overthrow of our government in 1893, fast forward to now, there's petroleum coming out of our water faucet because of the U.S. military industrial complex and, and because of a lack of, of respect and, and really just, just lack of, of awareness and understanding. And, you know, uh, and also a calculated, calculated decision to allow humans to become poisoned and perished so that the military industrial complex continues to push forward. So... Everyone that's drinking this water is collateral damage, you know. Hawaii did just host the, the RIMPAC, Rim of the Pacific exercises, where they bring in dozens, quote-unquote, allies from around the world, like Israel, to come and, and practice invading a Palestinian home. Um, and even for those, you know, quote-unquote, close military allies, they're filling their ships up with water that is contaminated. It's proven to be contaminated, and they don't care. So it's it just, it just wild, and this is not the first time that this facility has leaked, it's been leaking. There was a spill in this most recent spill in November 2021 was 19,000 gallons. There was another discharge of fuel in April of this year um, that was smaller. Uh, but if we go back to 2024, that was a 27,000 gallon spill. And prior to that, additional spills, you know, this facility was classified up until 1999. So we didn't even know it existed. And, and, and as soon as we know it exists, people at that point begin to push back. But, it, you know, reports are coming out of, of so many leaks from the decades that we didn't even know it was there that it's hard to track how much petroleum has actually leaked into our aquifer over time. And so the state of Hawaii, specifically the Department of Health, has a, a range of an acceptable amount of petroleum hydrocarbon that is in the water. 180 bits per million is where you can see, taste and smell fuel. And, and we are well above that. So after the spill last fall, the Department of Health increased that to 400 uh, bits per million. For your safety. <laughs> you know? And so um, where we push back is right now, the state is saying that, that that water is fine to drink, but they're accepting a level of petroleum in the water that, that is unacceptable. Anything that, that's above zero 
is unacceptable. And, and so this has been happening for a long time. Um, this is a massive cover up. And at this point, if we don't push back, it will just continue to happen. The cycle will, will, will continue. And, and truthfully, you know, August of this year, uh, a few weeks ago, there was contamination, you know, heading east towards Honolulu that was basically hit uh, a monitoring well for the very first time. Um, so we see this fuel plume is traveling towards Honolulu currently, and there's nothing we can do about it. That's petroleum that's in the aquifer itself. And, and, and that's the stakes that we're at. You know, the, the true stakes here are, you know, the end of all of all life on Oahu. 900,000 people unable to use their water, petroleum that not just contaminates the well and the water itself, but also um, the pipes. You know, it, it gets sucked into that PVC piping and, and it cannot be removed. So and, until the Navy itself replaces all their pipes, they're going to continue to feed contaminated water to everyone on it, which includes eight elementary schools. So Jesus. it is a wild situation. Have you noticed, um, you know, I feel like I feel like this is one of those moments that has to be like a wake up call to people across political spectrums. And I'm really interested to know if you've seen that in terms of like the organizing and saying, like, look at what the government is doing to us. Like, I, it doesn't matter which side of the spectrum you're on, but this is not acceptable. And there's really no excuse to not be fighting this. Absolutely. Yeah. In our organizing, we've been seeing amazing strides being taken from people who are maybe not organizers or who are just so kind of like deeply siloed in their red team, blue team, <laughs> false binary that we never would have imagined possible. Like I, I personally uh, never would have imagined that I would be spending the bulk of my free time and waking hours organizing alongside, you know, like military families. And yet that is, that is what's, what's happening. And, and it is, it has been an eye-opening experience. It has been heartbreaking and beautiful and just so instructive and illuminating. I think the biggest silver lining to this giant dark cloud that is the fuel plume migrating slowly toward the municipal water supply and to Red Hill itself is what has been built and is continuing to be built from this disaster, from this completely avoidable tragedy. And I think just one example is, well, now we have many examples, but the most recent example is we just went to D.C. with the invitation of one of the active duty military family members who spoke out. And initially, we were just going to join them in a protest of the EPA. And it's not, it wasn't like a right-wing protest of the EPA. It was a demand for them to do their jobs with respect to Red Hill but also with respect to PFAS, which is in a lot of firefighting foam and, and many other products, and it's a forever chemical that is, we have just recently found out is in literally all the rainwater on the planet at this point and uh, is killing firefighters, it's killing babies, it's killing all sorts of, of non-human relations. So when we got there, though, as, as we were building together, we started to like really establish strong relationships and, and understanding across chasms of, of, of difference and, and you know, contradictions that I think many of us never could have imagined building a bridge over before this crisis reached its, its pinnacle. And what's been incredible about all of this is like many of the families that I personally organized with, it's just amazing to see them move sometimes just within a matter of weeks to just kind of like a jaded, cynical, justifiably perspective of 
you know, military leadership, a position of full solidarity with the deoccupation and restoration of the Lahui, the, the, the nation of Hawaii for uh, the Hawaiian people and, and a return of lands to the Hawaiian people and for the demilitarization of Hawaii. Uh, and, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with what happened to them, right? Nothing can really sharpen one's perspective if, you're, if you don't already have a political consciousness than having your entire life turned over by someone who values you less yeah. than their quarterly earnings, right? But uh, there's like a, there's also this other uh, aspect where they see who's who's letting them down, who's who's literally just kind of like leaving them to die, and they see who's actually showing up. What they quickly begin to realize is that the people who are showing up in solidarity with their struggle, the people who are bringing them clean water and crying with them, and and building with them and fighting alongside them, are the very people whose continued existence is threatened by the military presence that they are complicit in. And it's, it's been a very difficult but, but incredible thing to, to witness them wrestling with those contradictions and coming on the other side into solidarity as a result. Despite all of this, that's incredibly optimistic in the sense that I think we're at a point, and I, I'm sure you're in the same conversations that I've been in on the left about whether or not it's worth trying to organize with people of different political opinions. And um, I am optimistic that we have more in common than we don't and that we need to build those bridges. And I think you're, you're experiencing that in a, a terrible situation where people can see that it's much more complicated than um, just, you know, like you said, this false dichotomy of red versus blue. And it, it's more than that. So you brought up that you guys were in D.C. Uh, I know you just got back, quite literally just got back. Could you guys speak a little bit about what you guys were doing in D.C.? Yeah, it started with a last minute invitation to the safe EPA protest that Mikey had described. Solidarity with movements facing contamination, mostly by the Department of Defense of, of water, land and air. So that that solidarity was real. And, you know, being invited by active duty military, you know, uh, major in the army who both herself and her family drank contaminated water. Her young children uh, were severely affected, went to the hospital. And she's one of these very brave, rare souls that decided, uh, I'm just going to go for this. You know, I'm, I'm going to push as hard as possible because I cannot do anything but push. Uh, but she's also opening the door behind her. You know, so she was willing to split her 10 minutes on stage with us uh, and particularly having Kanakamali on stage and particularly teeing us up to be able to talk about things like demilitarization, deoccupation and sovereignty alongside her. Um, so, so that is is in many ways an historic Huli shift in the mindset of, of what myself as an organizer believes is possible. You know, this is this is a person who, who literally opened the door into a senator's office on Thursday that refuse to meet with us as as Kia'i, as, as protectors of this Aina, as the people that descend from these water sources that have been here from the beginning, that discovered this island, right? There, there, there's no one more qualified to have a conversation about why this facility needs to be shut down than the people that descend from that place. Uh, but but yet, you know, there, there was a senator that wasn't getting back to us. And, and so she was able to schedule a meeting, her and, and her, her uh, group of military spouses and they opened the door literally they just let me come in the room at the end of, of of their talk they left and said senator um i expect you to give him 30 minutes 
just like you gave us. And and that's what happened. And so that and allowed me to speak about, uh, you know, the topics that, that we needed to impart on him. So why were we in, in, in D.C.? And we were in D.C. Um, because nothing has happened. This, this facility started, you know, has been leaking, got so bad that the state of Hawaii Department of Health ordered the facility closed. The D- Department of Defense chose to view that order as an opinion and then sue the state, which was wild. Uh, eventually backpedaling a few months later and then agreeing to to begin to defuel and decommission. But agreeing to doesn't mean anything because, again, that, that facility spilled again in April after being shut down. And then I continue to remind people of this because the Department of Defense, their PR strategy has been extremely successful because the amount of people that know about Red Hill is is very small. But even the people that know about Red Hill, most of them think, oh, isn't that facility shut down? Because that was their massive announcement last December. The facility shut down. Everything's cool. We've got this handled. And, and they certainly do not have this handled because people remain sick and continue to show symptoms to us as organizers. We're, we're seeing that the Navy housing itself and the Navy's water supply continues to have high levels of petroleum in it. And, and people are continuing to get sick. Um, and, and so it's up to us as activists to either say this is something that we're just going to allow to happen or we're going to fight back. And so getting the opportunity to go into D.C. was to go out there and make a ton of noise. You know, we started Monday. Our goal was to to make sure that people that didn't know what's going on know what's going on and know that we are fighting back. We're not going to give up until that facility is totally deoccupied. Um, and so Monday, uh, we're organizing with some of the local colleges, some of the local Kanaka, Native Hawaiians and Kia'i, doing a, an art build for a planned action the next day. And, you know, Lafayette Square uh, in front of the White House totally clears out. And so we're, we're kind of curious and then we get kind of pushed to the street. So we're there seeing a bunch of people gathered, getting curious of what's going to happen. You know, I just kind of pulled the bullhorn and just start going for it and start talking about what we're doing there um, and educating people what happened and then sort of get a tap from uh, another one of our organizers within Oahu Water Protectors, who is a former colonel in the military who was involved in the invasion of Iraq and then retired and then has become an incredibly important anti-war activist, just a unbelievable badass. But she sort of starts to catch out of the corner for right. Like, I think this is the presidential motorcade, so keep going. And so we just start getting louder and louder. And then we're, you know, with the bullhorn, we're in shouting distance as Joe Biden gets out of his car. Um, and so we make our demands clearly heard to him. There's a hilarious picture that someone airdropped to us after all this went down. And he's looking right at us. And in particular, we're, we're calling out the fact that there is no one in charge of this. You know, it, it's almost been a year and nothing's happened. All of this, the fuel continues to remain 100 feet above our aquifer and is spilling into it. And it's just unacceptable. And after we make all this noise, literally 45 minutes later, the commander of the Joint Task Force Red Hill is appointed. It is appointed by the Secretary of State and echoed by a senator um, claiming victory over this. Pure coincidence, yeah. I'm sure. Had yeah, always, to do with always the, the case. <laughs> hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Pearls Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content 
and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. So most likely someone that heard, you know, whether or not it was POTUS or not, wanted to know, like, what is going on with Red Hill? And the answer was literally there's no one in charge to ask. So why don't you get your shit together and appoint someone? So we were claiming that as Oahu Water Protectors. We made that happen on Monday, and that was day one. So we were totally stoked to go into the EPA rally on, on Tuesday, sit next to active duty military, explain why we're there, um, explain why this water is so important to us, and explain why the movement forward is is a mass mobilization of, of Kanaka and Kama Aina people of the land and, and, and the people from the land working in unison to push forward from Red Hill into, you know, demanding self-determination and, and, and access back to lands that we've been deoccupied from. That Tuesday spend time, you know, back at, at the front gates of the White House, uh, which in itself is its own story um, about how they, you know, basically block Lafayette Park again, um, don't allow us to enter until we do our full action. And then they, they remove the gate. So Secret Service was absolutely aware of who we were and what we were up to. But in general, that, that week was really successful. We spent, you know, Wednesday and Thursday inside of the Capitol building, meeting with our elected officials, you know, some that we have a meeting with, most of them we don't, and just work our way into rooms with them and make our demands heard. And so, you know, we end that week demanding civilian access in the membership form onto the Joint Task Force Red Hill. So we start Monday without a commander. There is a non-existent task force. We end the week with that task force up and running with the commander, now someone to point to, demanding that we have a seat at the table, that there's a civilian or multiple civilians on there, Kanaka and individuals that have been sounding the alarms since the 2014 spell and even prior. And, and now we, we really focus what our ask is. Um, and so to us, that was all action that we made happen by being there. And, and I would say, you know, we're, we're really excited about this forward progress because in many ways, Red Hill is this really frustrating movement where it's really difficult to pull the levers because we're talking about a military installation that's way behind enemy lines. It's not Mauna Kea. We cannot block a road here. All we can do is be creative, insight with social media, organize on the back end, create solidarity uh, with unlikely allies, and then just freaking put the pedal to the metal whenever we see an opening. And we see an opening here because if we get civilian oversight into Department of Defense activities, it sets precedent for a number of other military installations throughout Hawaii that we will then push for. And we just need that access. You know, we get, need to get in that room and we need to say what the hell is going on here. That's awesome that you guys got so much in, in a week's worth of activity. Yeah. And one, one thing to add at that rally. So when they closed off Lafayette Park to the public, that was right as our formal program was set to begin at three o'clock on the dot. And when I asked them, like, hey, what's uh, what's going on? Because this, they, they, they did this to let in the presidential motorcade from the front the day before, right? So it wasn't too suspicious, although we were kind of wondering, like, what the fuck? (laughs) But the second that we declared that we were going to end our formal program, they pulled the caution tape and let everybody in. And it was just (laughs) so, it was just, like, at least be subtle about it. It was almost like they wanted to send a message to us that it's like, yeah, you were the security threat. You know, like, they basically told us this bullshit story about a security threat. But yeah, we called them out on that, and... um, it feels good to actually have made enough of a stir over the past year to actually be considered a security threat. But it's also <laughs> kind of like really depressing and, and telling, I think, and revealing of, you know, U.S. imperial ideology that, you know, like neo-Nazis in Ukraine are not a, a security threat, right? Like, or 
neo-Nazis, you know, like domestically are not a national security threat. They are free to, to, to you know, to, to rally wherever they want, whenever they want, unless they storm the White House. <laughs> but when it comes to actual water protectors, that does not rise, you know, to, to the level of a protected speech. That becomes a security threat. And they'll, they'll do whatever they can. They'll come up with whatever bullshit pretense <laughs> to make sure that you know they can close off even public space to us. Yeah. Um. And there was there was another one, one other hilarious moment where you know we were we were chanting some pretty spicy chants uh, once we were able to get access you know to the, the front gate where the, the fountain is in the front lawn of the White House and one of one of the uh, uh the DC cops comes up to me and is like hey he just like basically thrusts his phone in my face and is like hey we need your permit information give me your permit information and I'm like wait we don't we don't need to permit to be here right and he's like no but uh, i'd really like it if you give me your permit information and so i was like wait so you're telling me we don't need a permit to be here so why would you need my permit information and how could it exist he's yeah. like yeah he's like fair enough uh but just you guys got to keep moving and so <laughs> well one of our other like uh kanaka comrades uh nani peterson did was like she was holding the banner and she just she was just like okay we're gonna shuffle three steps to the left and then three steps to the right and we're just constantly moving yeah, so we were able to, to stay there for quite some time to shout at Sleepy Joe and, and wake him up, which is another small <laughs> victory. Uh, yeah, that you know, you got to count the ones you get. What I'd be really interested to know is kind of what the feedback you got from some of the folks that you were organizing with if they joined you that were military vets, folks that might have been maybe not as left wing, you know, experiencing this kind of treatment from the government that they may have been more ambivalent about as opposed to you. Oh, this is a funny one because, I mean, when, when we're mentioned in the press typically we're given the label of protester right we are kiai we are protectors or guardians of our natural resources i will always stand by that what are we protesting we're protesting you know the extraction of our lifeblood all we want is fresh water all we want is our land back all we want is the us's weapons away from our shores you know but yesterday there's an article that comes out and you know, you're describing affected military families. So you're talking about, a, uh, you know, a spouse of someone that is in the military who's dedicating their career to fight for what they believe is right and, and, and risk their life, you know. And when they come home, their loved ones, their spouse, their children are poisoned, totally poisoned and, and being gaslit and told there's nothing wrong with your water. Um, none of you guys are sick. You know, th th this is the treatment they're getting. And so, you know, these brave women have come forward to, to shake the gates. Um, and one of them in this article is described as a protester. So I reached out to her and said, you know, welcome to the club. You're one of us now. <laughs> and that just radicalizes her, yeah. you know, that infuriates her, that radicalizes her. Now she's like so far on our side. It's like, wow, what can we do? You know, we can start to push for widening our platform for, well, if you can't defuel us in two years, you need to give us land. You need to give us self-determination. Things are going to have to happen if, if you cannot fix this. And, you know, beginning to push those buttons and then have people on this side, on the military side, say, you know what, you are right, gives us a, an organizing opportunity that cannot be lost. Um, and, and it's just, you know, the output of, of the lack of awareness from the Department of Defense. Um, and, and it's just a playing field that we're on. So it's, 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 it's been a wild ride, I got to say. I didn't, a lot of this did not anticipate. You just got to kind of roll with it. Take what you can and, and keep running. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it, it really speaks to the fact that at the end of the day, a lot of us are really on the same side. We just don't realize it because there's, you know, shiny objects going by of a flag or whatever it might be. But when it when push comes to shove, we really are. We all want basically the same thing. And um, it, all it takes is for 
a, a military spouse to realize when the chips are down, the guys that you've been complaining about that you think are the problem, you're suddenly one of them because the government doesn't really care about you. You are just a, a cog in the machine. Absolutely. And, and, yeah. and I, I, totally, I totally agree with what you're saying, but I would maybe caveat that with we're not necessarily all on the same side, but we do share a common oppressor. Yeah. And the moment we can kind of come to grips with that and figure out how we can work in genuine solidarity and kind of like own our complicity within that oppressive structure, that's the moment where they get really fucking scared, right? <laughs> yeah. Like they're, they're happy to see us tear at each other for all the most mundane type of things or, or to be willing participants in perpetuating the oppressive structures that protect their interests, right? Their capitalist interests. But when we actually start working together, taking like very concerted steps, like difficult steps toward accountability as, as settlers, as white people, as, as cis people, as, as, you know, members of the bourgeois and petty bourgeoisie, like the moment that starts happening, you know, the moment we, we, we all start joining in protection of, of land and water and, and working people, the way that indigenous people and, and working people and black people have been doing for centuries against this world capitalist hegemon, the moment things start to fall apart. And I think that's also the moment where they will start to tighten their grip on everything. And we're already seeing that, yeah. right? Like, it doesn't matter what fucking president we have, <laughs> the ruling class will hold on to what it can while it can, and they will do whatever they can by any means necessary to ensure that they continue to keep a hold on it. But, you know, like, like that, that, that paper tiger has a looser grip than we think. Yeah. And uh, I think, I think part of, of what has been really a cause for, I think, revolutionary optimism, organizing around shutting down Red Hill, is that we've been able to poke some holes into that paper tiger. And to see the light on the other side of it, right? Like we got the fucking Secretary of Defense in less than half a year to announce that they were going to shut down Red Hill. I don't think that would have happened without without the movement that has been building over generations, pushing for that demand, right? We've made them make some incredible concessions, uh, not not just on the military side, but but on you know the state bureaucracy side and and our elected misrepresentatives in Congress side, things that they never would have done were not for considered pressure against them or the public permission that we helped to engender to allow them to do their jobs, right? And, and so if we can do this on every single front, I think eventually we'll be able to poke a hole large enough for all of us to fit through before climate collapse swallows us whole. <laughs> I hope we so. we need to work fast. Yeah. <laughs> With all this movement going forward, is there something in particular that you guys are starting to like build up for or you want you're looking for support for like what what are you planning on doing that you would need people who want to help you out yeah my my long term ambitions have always been with or without red hill with or without monica it always the same movement and that movement is towards sovereignty it is towards self determination um and, and it's toward uh, you know uh, restoring our rights as Kanaka Mali, as, as Kamaina, as a people of Hawaii, our government was illegally overthrown. You know, we, we are a sovereign nation under military occupation. There is no treaty of annexation. The U.S. Navy rolled in guns blaring, occupied our seat of, of government, imprisoned our head of state, and they didn't leave. So the entire foundation, the statehood vote in itself was fraudulent. Um, each one of these steps, the, the legal foundation d does not exist 
for the state of Hawaii. And all it needs to take is, is, is everyone's mind totally being awoken and understanding that actually life can improve with liberation of the homelands, with the occupation, with land back. Uh, for me, it is infuriating when, when I'm on, say, land, military land, and then I'm just seeing archaeology of our food system, understanding that these quote-unquote protected forests, uh, they were farmland. That was how we fed ourselves. We're importing 85 to 90% of our food, and, and our farmland is being withheld from us, and our people are, are homeless. And it doesn't make any sense to me. And and so to me, it's you can't defuel in two years. Give me some fucking land then. You got to give us something. You need to compensate us for the destruction of our home, for putting us at, at this level of risk. There needs to be compensation as we mobilize under for the larger mass hooli and the revolution that that is inevitable here. Um, at, at some point, we will get to that state. How we get there, there's a lot of different thoughts on, on so. Um, but to me, it is reacquiring as many land bases as possible and building self-sustaining food sovereign communities that are able to, at that point, drastically reduce their cost of living so they can just live normal how we would live without this capitalist society if we could just walk onto the land and, and, and build the homes the way that we want. If the state wasn't there, we would be in better shape. That That's just a fact. And, and there is a way towards that. So much of Hawaii is undeveloped, is 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 places where our people used to live. And a portion of that is on military bases. And so if we're being asked to reduce our water by 10% because of the water shortage, if the Navy continues to overpump millions of gallons per day in violation of their permit, in my opinion, you know, 10% of the Navy should leave then. Um, if you don't have enough water for your people, then you got to go. And, and so for starters, 10% yeah. for starters. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, phase demilitarization. You know, people kind of always the argument being, you know, what about China? What about Russia? Like, what about them? You know, America is is the one that goes and occupies, not these other countries in that capacity. But phase demilitarization is different. I think that's less scary. I think one percent, five percent, ten percent, a reduction in footprint, a reduction in pollution, and return to the land for the people is a net net win. You know, if, if our people are are farming on land they don't have to pay for. The agriculture and the stores become cheaper. Everyone's cost of living does reduce. And, and so it's just beginning to frame that this is going to happen in some capacity. And it is a result of the over-militarization and, and the over-development of, of Hawaii. It, it is unsustainable. The cost of living or the cost of a home cannot increase by 20% in the past 12 months the way that it did. That, that, that has to end. And so all of these elements are coming together at the same time. And we need Red Hell to be defueled. But if they're stalling right now, we need to seize this opportunity as the organizing opportunity that it is while we continue to push for this facility to be defueled, while we continue to keep the public educated on their stalling and, and springboard off of this into in, the larger revolution that we, that we must push for if we're going to survive not just one, but seven future generations. How? how? How can I expect my children or my grandkids to have clean water if I don't fight with all of my heart? And something that my, you know, that my, my ancestors did for me, you know, my great grandmother's mother signs the Kuwait petition in 1897 um, at 17 years old, saying that she's against the annexation of Hawaii, a successful petition that has 90 percent, which is only 21,000 Hawaiians in, in, in full disapproval of annexation that goes to, you know, President Cleveland. And, and, you know, he actually decides not to move forward at that time. So it was a successful mobilization, mass movement by Hui Aina, a political party that, that is formed after the overthrow of our government. And so for me, that that's my great grandmother's mother, you know, 
I knew my great grandmother very well. Um, and, and so to put my place in her and understand how hard these generations have fought to ensure that we get to a place where we have this platform, we can go for it on behalf of our future descendants um, it is how it, it, it plays out for me. You know, we, we don't have a choice. You know, I don't think Mike and I want to be spending all of our time fighting but we have to, you know, we, we have to take the time to take off work, to go to Washington, D.C. for the week, because we know that the opportunity here is is a short window, a rare window to do some damage. And, you know, unfortunately, there's there's no other way but forward at this point. It is unfortunate. And I, I have two children. And I think, you know, the same thing about some of the things I'm involved with and that I would rather not be. And instead, it feels like I have a resp- there are things my ancestors did for me and there's things I have to do for future generations. And that can be really difficult, but necessary for people that are listening and appalled and want to do something. What are you looking for? What, what kind of support can people give you? I think the, the easiest way is to start to follow us on social media, follow Oahu Water Protectors on Instagram and, and Twitter, because, you know, every week there's a new development. Like if you want to join I think once this is all settled and done in a number of years, we're going to see a massive cover up of, of generations of people that have been poisoned, not just on military installation, but the surrounding area. Like This will become really big once all the pieces come together, um, because, you know, going up to Capitol Hill and meeting with some of our elected officials are saying, like, the Navy is lying internally to DOD in D.C. saying that no one is sick anymore, saying that we got this handled. So there, there's cover-ups inside of cover-ups. This joint task force was created outside of the Navy because they're starting to realize they cannot be trusted. And so there's so much going on here that beginning to follow the movement online will help you if, if you're interested because we're educating people not just on Red Hill, but the, the larger movement towards independence and, and how demilitarization is a critical piece of that you know, getting this boot off of our throat and getting our land back is intrinsically connected. Um, outside of that, I mean, you know, I, I'm happy to to plug donations for uh, an organization that, that Mikey is, is leading, Red Hill, Shut Down Red Hill Mutual Aid, um, which provides resources, uh, particularly water on a monthly basis to affected families, uh, military and civilian. And so that is, is a great way for us to also stay in touch with that community and also monitor to unfortunately see on a monthly basis that people continue to show symptoms so that we can go to Capitol Hill and tell our elected officials, we saw symptoms in the last week. So do not tell us that people aren't sick because we've seen it. When was the last time you were out here speaking with the community? You know, and, and so that is a way, you know, supporting shutdown Red Hill Mutual Aid does allow that to happen in, in a number of different ways. Yeah, mahalo nui. Keone mentioned a lot of them in particular would be awesome if any of you have the means to support Shutdown Red Hill Mutual Aid Collective. Our Venmo is Shutdown Red Hill Mutual Aid. And 100% of those proceeds go to water protector organizing, but mostly to distributing clean drinking water and other needed material supplies for family members who continue to be affected by the Red Hill fuel contamination. Those links will be in the show episode notes. So for folks listening, you can just go click wherever you're listening to this and links should be right there for you. I think that's everything I've got for you guys. Um, This has been really insightful, not always in good ways, but there are definitely some really great moments to be found in the midst of it. And I think that's what we really have to bring our attention to and remind ourselves that things can be better. And uh, sometimes it's just about connecting with people and finding ways to build some sense of solidarity. 
and you guys are doing the work. And in the long term, vocally support Hawaiian sovereignty and the demilitarization and deoccupation of Hawaii. Don't come to Hawaii <laughs> unless you are, you know, maybe specifically invited by Kanaka for some higher purpose other than, you know, staying at a hotel and just buying shit at Waikiki that you could literally buy anywhere else. For the longer term, for yourself, just ask yourself the question we've been forced to ask ourselves and that Kanaka have been asking for time immemorial. <laughs> you know, Kane. Uh, like, where are the waters of Kane? But specifically for any listener, where is your water? Where does your water come from? Because chances are what's happening to the water here What's happening to the water in Camp Lejeune? What's happening to the water in Okinawa, in occupied Palestine, in Korea? Could be happening to yours. And probably will someday. And do something about it. Yeah. <laughs> Organize, mobilize, agitate. Perfect words to leave on. Mikey, Keone, I appreciate this. This has been fantastic. Fantastic.